You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week on NSLT, we continue our four-part series on Iran. While you were gripped by runoff elections and the World Cup, more than 100 people, actually more than 400 people, were killed during protests in the Islamic Republic. And most remarkably, last week, the sister of the current Ayatollah, Badre Hosseini Khamenei, has called for her brothers and the government's overthrow in Iran. How did this country, known as the original home of the Middle East's cognoscente, a place populated by moderate Muslims living in relative harmony with Zoroastrians, Jews, and Christians, this country of Shiraz wine-loving, often self-described Aryans, home of poets and philosophers, how did this country and the people of Iran retreat behind the hijab for four decades How did this country reform itself as a state sponsor of terror? In 2022, just a few months ago, Iranian women began protesting against Iran's holy police, the very police that were established by the Ayatollah Khomeini more than four decades ago. We thought very little about the holy police until they arrested a young Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, for refusing to wear a head cover during a local protest. Did external forces prime Iran to become what it is today? Iran's leaders continue to ascribe blame for the current uprising to forces outside their country. Once again, Iran has risen in our consciousness and in our consideration of national security laws. My guest tonight is Shervin Tahiran, a JD candidate at Georgetown University Law Center and a research consortium member at the school's National Security Technology Incubator Project. As a member of the consortium, she contributes to the group's research on the risks social media can pose to our democratic society, communities, and individuals. Tahiran was attending the law school, this is kind of interesting, uh, while serving as a non-proliferation specialist on the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Asia, the Pacific, and Non-Proliferation under Chairman Brad Sherman and then Chairman Ami Berra, respectively, until 2021, just last year. And during law school, she's also spent time at the Senate Judiciary Committee under Chairman Dick Durbin and the State Department Office of the Legal Advisor. Tahiran is active in her law school, having served as managing editor of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy and as a member of the Barristers Council and Appellate Advocacy Team. Now, prior to law school, and Capitol Hill. She worked at the Arms Control Association, focusing on U.S.-Russia arms control, civil nuclear cooperation agreements, ballistic missile defense, and the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and nuclear testing, and the U.S. nuclear arsenal. That's a lot, really. Shervin, thanks for hanging out with me tonight. Thank you for having me. Let's launch into this. You've been looking at this, and let's start with the very beginning. People are wondering how it is information is being treated in Iran by the regime. What information might be shared? What might be coming in? What do you know? So I think uh, one of the best ways to answer this question would probably be to break down a little bit of 
how the Iranian regime treats information coming in and exactly the tools that it uses to control that information. So the Islamic Republic of Iran has always had a vested interest in information control and censorship stemming all the way to the beginnings of the revolution. Most of this censorship at first applied to print media and traditional audiovisual media, such as books, newspapers, radio channels, and so on. And a part of that strategy also centered around supporting regime-approved alternatives, including government-run newspapers and news channels, as well as even entertainment channels and sitcoms. Even at the beginning of the early internet era, censorship, filtering, and domain blocking was a frequent tactic of the Iranian government. But the Iranian people have always been adept at trying to get around these government censorship tactics and controls. This includes commonplace activities such as installing satellites on their home roofs to try and receive outside news and entertainment by television, to early adoption of VPNs called filter shakans or filter breaking to get around the internet censorship blocks. I want to briefly touch on social media specifically because that's been the core of my research at Georgetown Law. Even with prior censorship, it was a green movement that really began to lead to a complete and wholesale shutdown of social media platforms, beginning with Facebook and Twitter in 2009. Because social media and messenger platforms were such an effective and quick way for protesters to share information to mobilize or show the outside world the on-the-ground abuses and murder of protesters, the Iranian regime took special notice of these platforms and began to censor them. They did this even as senior officials continue to use those very same accounts themselves. Yeah, at one point last year, I actually counted 11 different Twitter accounts for Supreme Leader Khamenei in 11 different languages. But moving back to the regime's control of incoming information, the Iranian government continued their censorship tactics with pervasive state surveillance of these communication networks and capabilities to control the information. This parallel strategy of censorship and surveillance illustrates what a day-to-day -day life of an ordinary Iranian was like when it came to getting incoming information. Looking forward, the Iranian government had been trying to install a firewall, a, like national firewall akin to what China had been trying to develop, that they could really focus on filtering and blocking of information, as well as a national intranet that they were hoping to work on as well. And this halal internet, it's been called, would be an alternative, another Iranian alternative that they could point people to if they ever needed to shut down the internet again for the protests, such as like what we're seeing today. And finally, as a method of information control, the concept of mobile networks and Wi-Fi network blocking really also came about after the 2000 Green Movement protests in Iran. So 60% of the Iranian population and an even greater percentage in the rural parts of the country rely on mobile networks to gain access to the internet rather than using Wi-Fi. So when experts talk about internet blocking, it's important to double check whether they really mean one or the other. And usually they mean both. So when I talk about internet blocking, I'll be talking about both the mobile network or the Wi-Fi unless I specify one or the other. But internet blocking became a really popular tool for the Iranian regime during protests to try to stop protester mobilization and the reporting of government atrocities during those protests. The largest use of internet blocking appears to have been around the 2019 protests, where the internet networks were completely shut down for about 12 days. But since then, the government has appeared to take a more targeted approach to blocking the internet. 
With the current protests, for example, the government has been focused on either slowing down the network to a nearly unmanageable level or a level that might mess with some of the encryption standards, or they block networks for all but a certain amount of odd hours during the day at a time where they expect that the internet traffic will be the lowest. And if the protests have become particularly prevalent and violent in particular areas, such as the protests in Zahedan in the Sistan and Baluchistan province, then they'll do a whole network shutdown of just that city. Let's go back for just a second, too, and let's sort of unpack some of this. We get one view of what's going on over there, but several years ago now, it's actually been a little bit longer, I think, than, than it seems like it's been. There were a bunch of young students who were punished in Iran for posting, so trying to post messages. They posted a, an image or a video of themselves dancing to the Pharrell song, Happy. So who has the authority in Iran to enforce restricting communication? And what have these punishments entailed when there have been violators discovered? A simple question. And unfortunately, I have to give you another, a little bit of a complicated answer to that. I mean, in short, it could be a little bit of anyone. Iran has a parallel government structure when it comes to security purposes. They're armed forces and then separately they're law enforcement, similar to how we have here in the United States. But with their armed forces, they have both the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, and they also have a conventional military, which is called the Artesh, and that's just their standing ground forces. So it's the IRGC that we hear about all the time, and it's the Basij, which is the special paramilitary force that is run by the IRGC that you also hear about in terms of being around in the street and abusing people or harassing people. So separately on the second prong, on the law enforcement side, you have your traditional security law enforcement doing routine traffic stop violations, et cetera. And then you also separately have the morality police. And the morality police are also people in the streets, generally unmarked, but with some sort of an authority to detain you, specifically if they find that you are dressed inappropriately or doing something else that goes against this moral code of conduct. Any of those actors, it could be someone who could detain you in the streets, but it would probably be either the Basij or the morality police. And more frequently than not, the morality police, simply because it's kind of their only job. But for cyber crimes and for restricting communication, it actually gets even a little bit more complicated and complex. Because now it's not just the law enforcement or even the IRGC and the Basij getting involved, although they are to some extent. But now you also have Iran's intelligence services that get involved because of the monitoring and surveillance aspect of it, or also because of their own operations that they might be conducting. The beginning part of the research I was looking at last year when I started this project was Iran's cyber operations. And how Iran conducts targeted cyber operations outside of the country. And a lot of that is done by both the Intel services as well as the IRGC. So even the Supreme Leader can also get involved. The Supreme Leader has offices as well focused just on cyber policy and by extension its communications and surveillance and monitoring called the Supreme Council of Cyberspace, where they kind of develop a lot of their policies. So at any point, any one of these entities can get involved and target a particular individual. But common charges for internet crimes are already kind of echoing existing criminal charges. They could be blasphemy, insulting the supreme leader, immoral behavior, or spreading propaganda, colluding with a foreign adversary, you name it. Generally, those punishments tend to be fines, prison time, or even lashes, but they have also led to execution, even setting aside the current round of protests. 
Just really quickly, I think one case that I want to highlight to really illustrate this is the case of Rahullah Zem. So Zem created a really popular Telegram channel with 1.4 million subscribers. This channel is known as Ahmed News, and it shared damaging news about the clerical establishment. Zem had been imprisoned after the 2009 presidential elections and the Green Movement, and he fled to France in 2011. There he was granted asylum. Allegedly, the Ahmed News Channel was also used to coordinate protests and circulated a manual for a Molotov cocktail, and Iran successfully forced Telegram to shut down the channel for inciting violence in 2018. One year later, Zam was lured to Iraq to meet with someone who said that they could potentially help him with his work. But instead, he was arrested in Iraq by government forces, and he was transferred to the IRGC, who then took him back to Iran. After a bare-bone trial with little evidence of the 17 criminal charges, he was convicted and executed in December of 2020. That's really disturbing to hear. I'm really sorry to hear that that's how things are unfolding. Let's talk for just a minute about the role of the diaspora, because the Iranian diaspora is huge in the United States, particularly in California. I believe it's the largest diaspora outside of Iran. And there's been a brain drain in Iran. And quite frankly, a lot of the super intelligent people in Iran have ended up here to our benefit. But how are they reacting to these developments? Well, first, to be clear, I can't speak on behalf of the Iranian diaspora as a whole, nor would I want to. I just want to be clear that I can only really share based on my own observations of my social media research and what I've observed from going to the protests and my own conversations that I've had with people inside and outside of Iran. As for reactions, as I've seen, and as I'm sure you can imagine, you're seeing a lot of outrage and a desire to do something concrete to help. A lot of what I've seen on social media has been the sharing of stories and the demands of the Iranians in Iran, both of those protesting bravely, so in the hopes that sharing their stories might actually protect them from something worse, like execution by the government, or sharing the stories of those, unfortunately, now we're on our second execution that just happened yesterday, sharing their stories and making sure that people are hearing about what's still ongoing in Iran and that the protests and the crackdown is not over. There's a constant effort to make sure that these events are on everyone's radar so that the pressure on the regime sustains. And there have been many standouts in sharing these stories, such as the actress Nazanin Bonyadi, who's spoken about the protests at the United Nations and beyond, and is actively sharing the voices of Iranians on her social media. I've also been following and highlighting Iran's technical repression work through a Oxford University and Article 19 expert, Massa Ali Mardani. She's been doing phenomenal work tracking, again, what the protesters are doing online, what are they sharing. And that's the kind of work that I've been seeing members of the diaspora do to try to support the Iranian protesters. You know, in a personal capacity, myself and some of my fellow law school students, we've coordinated a group of interested students who want to do more to raise awareness on the issue. For example, I've been doing my research that I've been working on, and a lot of my initial research on Iranian cyber operations kind of turned into this research project on the protests and using the Iran protests as a case study of how a protest movement can display itself over social media, and as well as the manipulative tactics that may be happening to try to spread misinformation, disinformation uh, by the Iranian government into the protests to try to 
like water down the narratives. Uh, but other students have been putting together events. Some students helped organize an event on campus to the protest movements and women's right in Iran. We've met with school administration officials and professors and student body representatives to see how we as law students can help and get involved. And we'll continue our efforts and events into next semester or beyond if that's what's needed. And finally, I just kind of want to flag the delicate line that some Iranians have to walk. I think that some Iranians feel like they have to be really careful that when they act or when they speak out, that if they act in a way, it doesn't put their family who might still be in Iran in further danger. Given how easily the Iranian government has been arresting and how more frequently executing people on the most ridiculous of charges and sham trials, the danger has never felt more real. And that leads some Iranians to actually stay quieter or more anonymously than they might otherwise be. So let me let me just expand on that for a second. One of the concerns that um, has been expressed by others is that there's nobody waiting in the wings to replace the regime. And you and I have talked briefly about this in a pre-call that one of the big concerns that I think comes up now and again is that we love the idea of protest in this country and we see it as sort of a cleansing, a special and an important thing. But we also have to recognize that Iran is on the border of Russia. You know, Russia clearly helped them because Telegram, if, if they got Telegram to shut something down, then they were getting some cooperation from within the Kremlin. Are you discussing what would happen if these protests are ultimately successful in toppling the government and what might happen if a vacuum is created? I know it's nothing any Iranian wants to think about, but do you find yourselves focused exclusively on sort of supporting the protests or has your conversation gone to the point of what's the next step? What are the secondary consequences of this being successful? And what does support of Iran look like in that vacuum that may occur? Just to clarify, when you say the conversation in, in the general spaces on, I, I'm assuming you mean like on social media, those kind of spaces. Let's, yeah. let's start within your circles because you've been very active, very productive and very focused. Do you, do you find your conversations going to the what's next part of this necessary discussion? So again, with the caveat that I think that the Iranian diaspora is an incredibly wide diaspora. As you recognized yourself, you know, there are a large amount of Iranians in California. I come from Texas, another uh, state with a large Iranian-American population. Here in the DMV area, we have a lot of Iranian-Americans. And there are also a wide range of opinions and not in terms of the regime being bad. That's the one thing everyone can kind of get behind. Everyone agrees that this government is doing terrible, awful things and they need to be gone. But there is a lot of nuance uh, within the diaspora movement. So I can speak to myself personally and my experiences in terms of having those secondary conversations, I'm not necessarily seeing that happening. Uh, even if you go to the protests that are happening here in Washington, D.C., uh, even in my circles and, and also just what I've observed on social media and the various narratives about the Iranian protests on social media, a lot of it is still focused on just making sure that the momentum of the protests don't die out. I think there's this big concern that all the Islamic Republic regime officials have to do is just sit it out and just wait it out. Just stay there. You're under siege. Wait it out. And eventually people stop paying attention. You can do whatever you want. Clamp down and it'll all go away. 
So a lot of these messages have been centered around the idea that anything less than revolution would be a win for the Islamic Republic, including even substantial reform. And I also, I do think it is important to just think about the role of social media and how it plays in even having these discussions in the first place. It not only do you have general issues of authenticity, issues of attribution, if there is manipulated coordinated behavior, let's setting all that aside and just assume everything is a sincerely held conversation. The one thing we noticed in our research on social media generally, and to just clarify on the research consortium, I'm the only researcher that focuses on Iran. All the other researchers in our consortium actually focus on different issues, different regions. So it's been really fascinating to learn from each other, to learn from the Russia researcher, to learn from someone who focuses on First Amendment rights in social media. But one thing that we writ large observed was that social media already inhibits nuanced analysis and nuanced debate. And that tends to not be what gets people's attention or go viral, nor is it what these social media platforms were designed to promote. So instead, you have platforms that have thrived and threatened U.S. national security because of how quickly they spread condescending, divisive, or occasionally violent narratives, whether they're sincerely held or manipulated. And when you have an emotionally driven group of vocal supporters for the Iranian people letting out decades of frustration against a horrific regime, whether they're diaspora or not, nuance and secondary discussions are not the priority. The priority right now is stopping any more executions from happening and these sham trials. The priority is a disappearance of protesters and the vain hope that sharing their names in whatever format, whether it's stakes out in front of Capitol Hill or a social media post, will pressure the Islamic Republic to let them go. And in the face of these priorities, there is and has been online backlash to some extent to discussions about preemptive future leaders or you know, if anyone had brought up Russia over natural resources, I can't say taking over natural resources. I can't say that I've actually seen that. That tends to just kind of get labeled as a distraction. And distractions mean the regime gets more time and the regime having more time means it wins. The logical conclusion and implicit or explicit accusation that people with these sincerely held passions and desires to support Iranian people can say is that if you try to distract from the movement and from what's actually happening on the ground with these concerns, then you're letting the regime win. And this is a way that narratives and outrage are being shaped and shared on social media. It is a little bit of a concern you can imagine to people who take a long-term view and who've worked in diplomacy, who have great institutional knowledge that, you know, this discourse isn't taking it to the next level, just as you say, it's not, it doesn't lend itself to nuance, but it, it would certainly be something that could be a very interesting discussion. Like who's out there to fill in? Who could come into leadership in Iran? Where is that person? Are they inside the Islamic Republic? Are they somewhere else? But I don't hear those conversations happening. And I don't believe that those conversations are happening away from social media on more nuanced platforms where people are having these conversations, whether they're you know, the Atlantic or foreign affairs, but it doesn't, I'm just not seeing that level of conversation about this yet. And there just has to be an end game here or some thought given to the fact that this has become a bit of a welfare state, right? And people are going to need to survive after that. And they're going to need some institutions that they can rely on and some leadership that is dependable. And we're not hearing any names. We're not hearing any possible new contenders for the role or what a government structure might look like. 
And I hope that people your age will begin to think about that and come up with some very good solutions. Let's talk a little bit about something that you've also given some thought to and really good for you, which is how the United States uses its national security legal apparatus to assist with information getting into Iran. And there have been some shifts. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, so the key thing that I think was a really fortuitous timing is that the U.S. government was able to issue a general license, general license D2, to increase support uh, for internet freedom in Iran. And this license, general license, not only did it provide updated guidance, it also allowed for greater authorizations for technology companies to be able to offer the Iranian people more options for platforms and services online. I think uh, Brian Egan may have touched on this a little bit in your very first podcast with him as well. It's a continuation of the fact that the U.S. government has been focusing in its programmatic work, as well as a recognition that there may need to be more ways to reassure technology companies that improving communications and making it easier for Iranians to access free and open information is a priority for the U.S. government. The other things that, you know, we've looked into is that the U.S. does also support programmatic efforts to promote democracy and human rights in Iran, either through foreign assistance or through their Persian language broadcasts of Voice of America or their radio equivalent of Radio Farda. But given the sanctions regime, congressional interest in geopolitical sensitivities, any further efforts would likely have to be quietly managed because of the complexities involved. So I think that's one thing that the United States, even if it wants to do more, should be mindful of and is being mindful of beyond just what they are able to put in their annual budget report. So sanctions is a big thing that we can legally track and make recommendations on. Then in terms of information and communications anyway, the Voice of America and Radio Fire, the equivalent. But like one example that I think is really illustrative of this is once the general license was actually announced, uh, Secretary Anthony Blinken tweeted about it. And Elon Musk replied immediately saying, Starlink has been activated or something like that. So he made all these headlines about how he'd be providing Starlink devices now for the Iranian people, just like he was doing in Ukraine. But first, he never said if he was going to donate them or expect the U.S. government to buy them, even though that was unclear. In any case, it's been reported that several Starlink terminals have made their way into Iran, but difficulties still remain. So, for example, there's a $600 price tag on each terminal. And on top of that, there's a subscription service that Iranians can't pay for because of international banking sanctions. And from a hardware perspective, even if Starlink is smuggled into Iran in a greater number, it still may need to be within a certain range of a ground terminal to work. And so the terminals can't be too far away from the Iranian border. And even with all that, just because Starlink works on a different network doesn't mean that its capabilities will be forever secret from the Iranian regime. Should the Iranian government be able to track where Starlink devices are being used, it could lead to more executions and allegations of foreign interference. This shouldn't mean that creative solutions shouldn't continue to be considered, just that there are both geopolitical complexities as well as software and hardware obstacles that will have to be carefully addressed. Yes, and they are. The Iranians are very good at reverse engineering things that they get their hands on, as you've probably heard, I'm sure. Let's talk for a second about the efficacy of the efforts and the, the use of the general license. Are you seeing, are you understanding that it's had any efficacy in terms of cowing the current Iranian leadership? And is it doing anything that is meaningfully supporting this effort to move toward democracy? 
I'm not sure that the general license was supposed to affect the Iranian leadership in any way. I think it was probably more than anything for the U.S. tech companies and to reassure them that, you know, should they want to provide tools and services to Iranians to help them get around censorship capabilities, that they would be able to do that. So, for example, shortly after the current round of protests started in September, Google announced that it was going to promote the VPN called Outline. And that VPN actually saw monthly users soar to about 2.4 million unique devices in September. And other platforms like Signal have also been publishing blogs for Iranians on how to access VPN. So I think particularly in terms of measuring efficacy, just getting these companies more involved and making sure that development of VPNs continues is going to be really important. And a big reason for that is that VPNs are actually pretty easily discovered and like the Iranian government can easily kind of find them and then block them. And then the Iranian people have to go find another VPN. And it just kind of ends up becoming a little bit of a race where the people are trying to stay one step ahead of the government at all times. The other problem is that those are all just free VPNs. A paid subscription would probably provide greater protections and be harder for the Iranian government to actually track or block those difficulties are that Iranians can't really pay for paid subscriptions, either because of, again, international sanctions or simply because of affordability reasons. So they end up relying on these free tools. And those are the kind of things that third parties could really promote development on to help with better communication. All right. Well, you heard, I think you heard Brian Egan say something about how the companies were still just a little bit reluctant and uneasy with all of this. And so probably not everybody who will take advantage of it has done so. Let's turn back to what we were talking about just for a moment and just sort of ease out of this conversation. One of the concerns about the movement, of course, is that you would like to see Iran become a more open and democratic society. But the last time, sort of democracy being a dirty word sometimes in Iran, because it's associated with some of the words that were used by the Pahlavi family, and not necessarily to the best reception of all persons within Iran. Let's talk for a minute about this, which is that Russia is right next to Iran. It's a neighbor. Russia covets and always has desired warm water ports. They're both participants in the oil industry, and they are both purveyors of natural resources that are needed throughout the globe. Let's talk for a minute about the discussion of sort of any of the implications of this to the wider. We've talked a little bit about who would come in and fill in, but the possible alliance between Russia right now and Iran and how some of this may harden that relationship. Some of this discourse on social media could harden and solidify that relationship a little bit more, you know, so that Ron feels the the regime feels it has some sort of an advocate nearby. Do you ever see this being discussed? I know you've mentioned social media doesn't really allow for nuance. It's not designed for nuance. It's designed for quick hits and monetization. But are you seeing any discourse on these possible concerns? Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I haven't been tracking the uh, think tank loop as well as I once did before going to law school. So if it wasn't about cyber capabilities, it probably wasn't on my radar. Um, I can tell you one thing that might help illustrate just my understanding of Iran's relationship with Russia is a little bit similar as its relationship to China in that 
the three of them tend to have marriages of convenience with each other, but they're not necessarily allies. So they will work together where their interests align, but they are not necessarily partners or will too much go out on bat for each other. So right now, you know, the news has come out that Iran has been providing arms to Russia in Russia's actions and activity against Ukraine. And I think that's illustrative of like the fact that Iran needs money, right? And Russia needs arms. And so they are able to work that out. And you saw that a lot in the cyber social media space in their information and disinformation tactics. So when COVID occurred, and then also in instances of US presidential elections, where their messaging aligned or where they had messaging goals that would align for their disinformation operations, they would like coordinate on messaging. But they would also go off and do their own thing. Same with Iran and China, for example. They have worked together on cybersecurity measures. They signed a like 25-year cybersecurity agreement that they're going to work with each other on. But that said, Iran doesn't completely trust China either. One of the social media platforms it's banned is TikTok, which here in the US, we always hear about being careful about because of the Chinese influence. So I think throughout it all, Iran really... It's just more concerned about being a regional hedgeman focused on the Middle East activities. And at this point, I think it's just going to do what it can for state survival. I'm personally not even sure how much Russia would be able to guarantee them that considering Russia seems to have the same problems right now, uh, or at least things are still ongoing with Ukraine and not quite as clear as how well that's going to turn out for them. I think that I'm sure the discussions are happening somewhere. It's just not thing I would say is a key priority that I've seen in the think tank spaces at this point. All right. Well, that has been very fun to hear. Thank you so much. It's always interesting to figure out how social media is driving anything within Iran or anywhere else for that matter. I just wish that, you know, it allowed for some nuance because I think some of these deeper conversations need to be had among the supporters of those who are trying to move for more freedom within Iran. So thank you so much for coming in and talking to us tonight. It's been a pleasure and I wish you luck on your next projects. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning into NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Feel free to send us comments and feedback on Twitter, at least for now, at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us direct email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. NSLT's producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. If you're among the many smart people, some 650 or so, who attended this year's National Security Law Conference in Washington, thank you. We hope to see you next year. And in the meantime, we have lots of breakfast speakers and programs, and you should attend. You can easily make those by taking Metro, for the most part, to Farragut North. You can also do bike share. You can also take a scooter, but do whatever you can to join us. These are terrific networking opportunities, and they're smaller in scale. So it gives you a chance to have some face-to-face -face time with some of the people that you admire. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.